So Money, Episode 694, Josh Robbins, Chief Strategy Officer at America's Best 401k. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. How much are you paying in 401k fees, hmm? Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. A lot of us listening to this show, we have 401ks or 403bs and the like. These are retirement plans typically offered through our employers. But have you really ever taken the time to figure out how much you're being charged in fees to invest in these portfolios? Today's guest is Josh Jenkins Robbins, and his mission in his career and in his life really is to pull back the veil on all the excessive fees he claims these 401k plans charge. He is the chief strategy officer at America's Best 401k. There they try to save investors up to 40% in fees. And on the show, we talk about why the 401k market needs disrupting and how we can all reduce our fees and maybe even play some catch up in our retirement accounts if we feel behind. It's worth mentioning that Josh is also Tony Robbins' adopted son. And as we know, Tony is the number one life and business strategist in the country. He was also my very first guest on So Money. So I had to ask Josh what it was like growing up with Tony as head of household and how their relationship influenced his money mindset. Here we go. Here's Josh Robbins. Josh Robbins, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you. You're the Chief Strategy Officer of America's Best 401k, which has kind of uh, gotten a a bit of a a name for itself in the in the media at least as kind of this 401k disruptor because you and your team feel as though the model the traditional model of 401k's is broken. Can you elaborate on that for us because I think most of us listening probably at one point in our careers have been invested in a 401k or currently investing in 401k's what are we doing wrong? Well, I think that it starts out with, uh, you know, the way that this industry has kind of uh, came to be, you know, for the first 30 years of a 401k plan uh, that in existence. So from 1983 to 2012, they didn't have to disclose how much they were charging you, how much they were taking out of your account. So this is, I mean, it's unbelievable, right? So what other industry would get away with that? You wouldn't walk into like a clothing store and, you know, have <laughs> we're not no going to tell you how much this costs. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just take it out of your account. Just trust us. <laughs> So that's the way so everybody is it's kind of like the frog in the boiling water scenario. So then they had these disclosures come out in 2012 and they're 30 to 50 pages long and they're opaque at best and attorneys wrote them extremely well so that no one has any idea. So I, there was actually a recent study by I think AARP was the study they said 71% of Americans don't think they pay any 401k fees whatsoever. So you probably have listeners right now they're going I don't know I had 401k yeah. fees and, and that's totally normal. So, the, so this industry has kind of gotten away with murder. It's a $5.5 trillion industry that really, I always say it needs its blockbuster video versus Netflix moment, right? It needs to be disrupted because um, they have put their compensation first and foremost. So you have all these brokers and unnecessary middlemen getting paid 
significantly. And when I say getting paid significantly, what that means is it's coming directly out of your account. So it's going to impact, it's going to erode your returns, which will have a huge impact on your future and society as a whole. So we want to, we want to, we want to change that. We want to, we want to give people uh, a different option uh, on a go forward basis. I will say though that thanks to the 401k, more people are investing for their futures. I think that in some ways we have to be grateful for the, the at least the idea behind the 401k, which is that here's an, a way for you, a vehicle for you to save for your future out of your paycheck automatically, which is, as we know, behaviorally speaking, that's all that works for us. We can't be yep. left to our own devices to save. So I appreciate that about the 401k. Um, where, where, when you say disrupt, what, what, how are we disrupting? How do, should we go about disrupting this? So I think, first of all, the 401k, I agree. It's an, it's an incredible tool. It's one of the few tools that has, you know, been put in place that's really succeeded to help, you know, kind of uh, society take care of itself. Uh, I don't think the 401k system is broken. I think the priorities are broken. And, and what I mean by that is um, you've got to get too many, you've got to get people out of your pocket. So the first thing we talk about is fees matter and funds matter. So let's take, let's take those, you know, fees matter. So let me just give an example. If you have two people and they both are, are have the, you know, over the course of their life, they have the, make the same amount of money. They contribute the same to their 401k. They get the same returns in the market. Um, when they go to retire, if one of those people has 1% in fees and the other has 2% in fees over that time period, annual fees, the person with 2% in fees will run out of money 10 years sooner than the person with 1% in fees. So the first thing you've got to do in your 401k plan is minimize your fees. There's a there's a, a whole host of unnecessary middlemen, including brokers making commissions off of off of your money. So that's the number one thing. And the second thing is the funds matter. You know, we talk about you know the the funds that are in most mutual funds are as people call them actively managed funds, and meaning they're they're charging ten to fifty times more than a low cost index fund, like one you might find with a Vanguard. And so, and the reasons why those are the funds that are in most 401k plans is because they give a piece of their revenue in what we call pay to play. They're, they're being offered on your list. When you look at your list of funds to choose from in your 401k plan, they're not there by accident. They're there because they're paying for shelf space, as I like to say. Mm -hmm. They want to be offered on that plan so they can pay the provider. So the priorities are screwed up in the 401k. It's a great platform, but the priorities are screwed up to make sure that the provider gets paid, the mutual fund companies get paid. So what we like to do is say, look, uh, let's just level the playing field. Meaning, why why should um, you know why shouldn't everybody have access to like a very transparent, low cost fee structure? Why shouldn't everybody have access to low cost index funds? Why shouldn't everybody eliminate brokers who don't need to get paid ongoing on your on your four hundred one k plan? Why don't we eliminate all of that? And it sounds like common sense, but it's not so common. There's not a lot of plans out there uh, that do that. In fact, the the most people, if you're listening. If you work with a very large company, um, you're probably in good hands. And the reason why is you know, I saw a study that came out last week, Furnish, that said 401k fees are falling. And I read closely and it says, this survey was done on plans with over $100 million in the plan. Well, that's one half of less, no, one, less than one half of 1%. But if you look at the, let's call it small business America, the backbone of America, 90% of all the 401k plans in existence are with companies that have under 100 employees. That's where the, the damage is done. So doctors, lawyers, attorneys, engineers, architects, manufacturers, these are the people that, that are getting, um, you know, the short end of the stick in our opinion. So that's why I think, again, the 401k is not broken. It's just the priorities are broken. 
Um, and then that will, of course, by doing that, that'll give everybody a huge boost on their way to their on their way to retirement. Yes, and I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> for those listening on the podcast because I get this question. Actually, I'm getting it more and more. Is that you know I'm in my 40s. I'm I'm looking ahead now to retirement. It's no longer this thing that's like 30, 40 years away. It's actually kind of around the corner. I'm approaching 50. Am I on track? And what can I be doing to stay the course? But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit more about how people can get access to America's Best 401k. Is this just something that they have to cross their fingers and hope their employers <laughs> work with you to prov- to offer? We can't just go to your website and, and sign up, can we? Yeah, you know, if you we want to help people take the first step of uncovering their fees. So if you're a business owner um, uh, or an employee that has a 401k plan and you go to showmethefees.com, showmethefees.com, you can uh, you can get a quick estimate. I always say it's like Zillow does a Zestimate. It's kind of like that. We give you a quick estimate based upon your plan uh, because everything is public information. And we'll give you a quick estimate. But if you want to take the next step and you actually send us your fee disclosure, and you can get your fee disclosure by calling your provider, uh, their customer service line, just say, can you please email me the fee disclosure? They have to legally send it to you. And then send us your fee disclosure. Uh, or you can upload it right to the site, right on that page. And we'll uncover those fees. We call it financial archaeology. We'll do the digging. We'll uncover all the hidden fees. <clears throat> and most importantly, what we'll do is we'll then show you. So if your plan is one and a half or two and a half percent, we'll show you what the difference would be if you were able to make the switch. And we'll show you how much more money would be in the plan just by making the switch. And, and as a general rule of thumb for news, people say often say, well, how much should I be paying? And I always say it should be, I believe that a, a good plan should have no more than it should be 0.75, you know, three quarters of 1% or less. And, and that means everything all in your cost of your funds, the cost of record keeping, the cost of any advisors that are part of the plan that are giving you advice. Um, that's in, I think that's a good benchmark. Now, most people are paying one and a half to, you know, 3%. So they can, there's huge reductions to be had here. So that's how, um, and of course, then you get decided to make the switch. Now, if you're an employee, you're really beholden to what the employer decides to do. But we have countless stories of employees who have gone through this process, uncover the fees, and then take the data to the employer. And remember, oftentimes, let's say it's a small company, the, the, the owner is usually contributing as well. So they're on your side on this. They want to make sure that you know, their, their, their own money isn't being uh, uh, you know, wrongfully treated. So in that respect, we would love to offer that service for you. Awesome. And just as a public service reminder, announcement reminder, you know, uh, unfortunately, only recently did 401k advice givers and ret- people who give advice around retirement planning, they have to be your fiduciary. They have to disclose if they are, in fact, getting pick- kickbacks on any products that they suggest to you. And they have to be very clear on the on the fees, whereas you talked earlier that like this for years, for decades was unannounced, went unannounced to, per- to p- plan participants. So I wonder, Josh, do you think that we're making progress in that realm, uh, that there is now more of a push for transparency? Well, that push ran into a pretty big brick wall with the new administration. And I'm not being political. I'm just saying uh, it's basically stopped. So the fiduciary rule has been postponed of implementation. So now, I, again, this is crazy, right? And when we when say did fiduciary this happen? Rule, I must have been asleep at the wheel. Yeah, it's back, back, had 2000. It's now postponed to June of 2019. It was so, supposed to be like by the this by year. this year. Yeah, yeah. So they they put it on hold because they want to do a they want to do a study to determine if people acting in your best interest is the right thing. 
So it just it's really? so it's so ridiculous, right? I mean, we, we're living in the only country, by the way, oh where God. you know the advice, financial advisors don't have to put your interest first. Most people go, "Are you kidding me?" I mean, doctors, lawyers, everybody has to put your interest first, or they get sued. You know, the UK, Australia, all have this for financial advisors. The US, that's not true. They can be a broker. They can sell you whatever they want. They can sell you as long as it's suitable, which is a very broad yeah. you know topic. They can sell you and make as much commission as they want. In fact, I'm sitting here for I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm looking at a disclosure. For, I just came into my email a little while ago from a provider that talks about a specific change they're going to make to how they deduct fees. And in bold, it says, we may and intend to profit from this charge. Wow. <laughs> so this is a new charge they're going to. So this is at least they're telling you. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean how bold, right? Like, yeah. well, who's going to read this stuff, right? No, no one's going to read these disclosures. So no one read their closing docs, right, when they signed their home, when they bought a home. So this is the way that this this all goes down. So unfortunately, the fiduciary rule it was making progress, um, and even then it was kind of, I always called the kind of sort of fiduciary rule. It was like we we're kind of a fiduciary because we can still make commissions. We can still sell you our own name brand products if we want to. It was a kind of sort of fiduciary rule, but now it's been postponed. So make no mistake, um, the industry is still putting their interest first. (sighs) All right. So give us some good news. (laughs) Let's let's talk about like, okay, so let's say you're, uh, you've been investing in a 401k for the, for the bulk of your career, you're in your forties and you're looking towards retirement. It's closer than ever before. Um, what can you do today to make sure that you're going to arrive at retirement with more money than you maybe would have if you hadn't taken your advice? I think two, I think there's two things. One is you've got to sock away, and everybody everybody says this, but you've got to continue to sock away as much as you possibly can, um, and and treat it like a tax. And most people don't want to give up any lifestyle, but you know, if we had a new tax tomorrow, government said no, you know, it's a new. We have a new 10% tax, 15% tax. We'd all, you know, bitch and moan and complain, but we'd all pay it, right? And this, you have to treat your future self the same way. So, and then if you're if you're if you're younger, on that note, you don't have to hit a home run to be financially free. In fact, you, most of the time, people won't. You have to earn. You, you will earn your way to financial freedom by simply putting enough aside enough money. In fact, I'll give you a compounding example that's important. You know, I always talk to teenagers. Oh, what can we do? And you know, look. If you start early, you're in great shape. For example, if you're 19 years old, okay, today, and you put away $300 a month, okay, that might sound like a lot, but look, you can hustle, you can do a side hustle, you can go out, you can mow lawns, do whatever you have to do. Anybody can earn an extra 300 bucks a month if they put their mind to it. If you stop contributing when you're 27, so you do it for eight years only, and you leave it alone, and you are in a, in a 401k environment where there's no tax, and let's say you just had it in the S&P 500, uh, and that would grow at 10% a year. When you when you are uh, 65, you will have 1.8 million dollars in that account. Wow, Isn't that amazing. So and you, and by the way, your total investment over the eight years was 28 thousand dollars. Yes. So so this is you don't have to be you know a genius. You don't have to be financial. You know, the, rich, you, you know, hit a home matter. run. You don't yeah. have to be rich. Anybody can do it. Now, the, so the second piece of advice, I'd say, so again, sock away as much as you possibly can. The second piece of advice is something that you have in your control, which is making poor decisions, right? So part of the reason, what Tony wrote, Unshakable, part of the reason why he wrote that book was specifically to talk about be the behavior of the markets. And what I mean is, this sounds like a controversial statement, and it's not, because everybody says, I know everybody, I know lots of people who lost money in the stock market. The only people who have ever lost money in the stock market are people who sold. And when I say that, or tried to beat the market, tried to trade, but people who sold, meaning 
if the market was at one point and now the market's at all-time highs as of last week, the only way you lost money is if you sold along the way, right? So even if you invested in the day before the crash of 08, the day before the crash of 08, you're still up over 120% today from that point. So I always so you have to understand that the market will always continually or all has always continually moved higher and corrections and crashes are just simply a part of the way the market behaves. So a correction is like a 10% move down and that has that and but not more than 20% and that has happened on average since 1900 once a year on average. Once a year on average. Just this last week we're pretty close, right? Right. So once a week, so, and, and most of the time, that in, in over 70% of the time, it finishes up in those years. Now, a crash, you know, a bear market, over 20% will happen once every three to five years. So if you're 50 years old or 40 years old, you're going to live through, let's say you're 40 years old, you're going to live through 40 plus more corrections, and you're probably going to live through seven or eight bear markets. Should you be concerned? No. What, what do you do? As Jack Bogle says, don't do something, just stand there. <laughs> right. The point, the point is you've got to understand the way markets behave. And I would say poor investors don't understand how those, how corrections and crashes work. Good investors do understand how they work, but they still drive themselves bonkers through stress. And great investors actually learn to anticipate them because the market goes on sale. We live in America and the stock market is the only thing that Americans don't like what's in on, when it's on sale. We'll trample each other on Black Friday for a hundred dollar flat screen. But when the market goes down 30%, we don't have nothing to do with it. Right. So yeah. this is a, this is an opportunity to yes. actually accelerate financial freedom. So in 2009, when the market was down, you know, our team was, you know, putting more money into stocks because we knew it was at a discount. And then of course, 2009 came and uh, we had a major, a major run. And so that, you know, no one knows what the future, no one predicted the future. It's just, you got to take advantage of when, when the market's on sale. I would love to spend the remainder of our time kind of exploring your personal money mindset and how you arrived at this uh, mission in your life to help other people with their money. We should mention that Tony Robbins is your adopted father. And so let's start there. As you were growing up, um, what was it like to have a parent that was a, a public and prominent figure? And how did that impact your your childhood? I'm just curious. Yeah, You know what? I get that question a lot. And I think I did, you know, earlier on in my adulthood, I don't, didn't know how to answer it because you don't know any different, right? That's your normal, right? So, you know, he came into my life when I was about five years old. So, you know, him being Tony Robbins, the persona is no, you know, was no, it wasn't different for me. It was just, that was, that's just who he was. That was my normal. But as I got older, um, you know, I think as I reflect back now, now I'm a parent, I have two little girls. I look back and I go, wow, what an, what a, what a gift, what an incredible opportunity he, he gave me. Um, to be surrounded by um, him and the tools and the resources and his influence and the people that I got to meet and the, the places I got to go and all the experiences. So, I, you know, I really came to just really just appreciate more and more uh, the gift that I've been given to have him as, as a father. So it's been amazing. And I think from a, you know, to tie it back to money, Mm -hmm. I think it was an interest. It was it was an interesting dynamic, right? Because Tony didn't. He grew up with nothing. He was dirt poor. So I think like most people who who maybe grew up with nothing and then came into something, they they want their kids to to have a lot. And we did. We did. He did give us a lot, but he was very tuned in to making sure that we weren't we weren't spoiled. And part of how he did that um, was to allow two things. One, allow us to earn it. So kind of have a great entrepreneurial 
you know, spirit. Um, so I figured out ways to earn money. And then number two, um, incorporate me into giving it away. So we would do, Tony is, uh, you know, a philanthropist and always has been. And, and for example, we used to always do on, on Thanksgiving and other holidays, we would go, we live in San Diego. So Tijuana was very close. A lot of migrant workers, you know, um, that are here. And so we would go to these camps, these migrant camps and pass out, you know, food and sit and talk with these people. And it was a great adjustment for me and a, and a, cal- a recalibration, if you will, to the expectations of living with much, um, to go be a part of that. So I think that was, those were the real, the big impacts for me. And he's always done that and always has kept me involved in, in his philanthropic, you know, uh, endeavors over time. And now, you know, it's part of my life as well. So it's a discipline that we do and my wife and I do, and that our children are now involved in and they're young, they're five and seven, but we're getting them enrolled in what, what they should do as well and how, and helping us choose which charities we're going to give to each year. And so, yeah, that's, hopefully that sums it up a little bit. It does. I'm curious to know more about how you decided to earn your money as a kid growing up. Yeah, I did. I worked at a, a bagel shop down the street. I did, a, I did all sorts of odds and ends, little things to earn money. One of my earliest memories was, uh, obviously, I grew up going to, to seminars, right? And Tony used to do these marathon events, like 10 days long. Um, and this one happened to be in Hawaii. And so I was there. And um, uh, this guy I knew, long story short, he had a he had a keychain business. And he said, hey, you want to sell these keychains? And I was kind of like, yeah, how much are they? And I had to pay his cost. And then so I went around and kind of leveraged. I'd go to these meal tents, right? We had, you know, 5,000 people all eating during the Tony lunch. Tony Robinson selling keychains at his own Oh, yeah, events. totally. So, yeah, so I was, <laughs> I was running around peddling these keychains, you know, to these tables and hustling and learning how fun it was. And I think I, like, within like four days, I had made like a thousand bucks. And I was probably like 12 years old. Yeah. I just was just a lot of money today. Right. I know. And I was like, I was blown away. And then I came home and at that time the the, I live in Southern California It's called the Del Mar area. It's called the Del Mar fair was in town. And I basically rounded up like five of my buddies and we went to the fair and I, we spent the entire thousand bucks on nonsense, right? Rides, games, but I'll tell you what was, was great about it is I learned that I can hustle and I learned how much fun it is to create experiences with the money that I have, right? So instead of buying stuff, experiences is so much more fun. So, and I also learned it created fun. So it's like, hey, okay, now I need to go earn some more. And obviously I, later on I learned I needed to save some, but during that time it was, a, it was a lot of fun. I really think those two experiences, you know, back to back really embedded a, a strong sense of entrepreneurial spirit in my life. Um, and also I still love to go and take my kids to do things or take friends to do things or create experiences. Um, Tony calls them magic moments. He's always looking to create cool experiences <laughs> in his life. And so that was really, uh, impactful for me as a, as a young, uh, young kid. So maybe the new saying is money can't buy happiness, but it can buy magic, magic yeah. moments. Yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. Well, if there was ever a period of struggle or financial challenge that you had or you know I always ask guests about maybe an experience that you had that wasn't the best financial moment in 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 your book uh what happened what ha- what was the experience and what did you learn that's a great question so I, I think my first so when I got um you know out of school I went my first job was at, as a stockbroker basically as a um so I got my I got my license and I had a complete antithesis of where I am today in terms of how I was working with people. And granted, I didn't have a lot of people. I was only 21 years old. But 
um, in terms of like charging commissions and selling funds. I was just trained just like everybody else is today. No one's, these aren't bad people that work at these big brand name firms. They're just trained to sell. Right. And so that's what happened to me. And I think that it was a, um, I got to the point where I realized, gosh, I'm selling, but I don't, I don't believe in what I'm doing. And that started to show up in my income, right? Like I was just not excited about, you know, peddling mutual funds, um, to people. And I, and I wasn't, it just wasn't joyful. And therefore I started to struggle, right? I started to struggle with, with the job, started to struggle with the position, struggle with feeling like congruent with who I was. And if that was really what I wanted to do. And so that was, you know, I think that early stages, you know, when I was just trying to figure, figure some stuff out, um, it was at the, actually at that time when, when, uh, Tony and my, my birth mother got separated. So I kind of left what I'll call the Tony Robbins world and just wanted to do something on my own in the financial world. And so I, I was, it was one of those things where no one cares about who they might listen to you for a second, but no one really cares who your parent, you know, your, your father is, or if they're going to give you their money, their hard earned money, right. They're going to look at you and sure the, the validity of, yeah, right. <laughs> they're going to look at the validity of your offering and what you do. So it was great for me. I had this kind of sink or swim. And so, um, it was tough. It was a really tough go for, for a while until I really started to, I guess, re- recall back to what I had always learned from Tony as it relates to business, meaning don't ever ask how I can make, how could I make more money? Always ask, how can I add more value? And if you ask, how can I add more value? Then the money will come. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know that you, you come up with the wrong answers when you go, how can I make more money? Just keep asking, how can I add more value? How can I add more value? Those are the businesses that do the best. So that was when I decided to launch my own business, um, at that time. And, um, that was again, like any entrepreneur, you're scrapping and trying to figure out how to get this thing done. And it was a struggle for, for a while. And we, I ultimately did, I was able to sell that business and it was successful. Um, but the, the struggle of that was great because, uh, you know, an on the ground boots on the ground MBA is what you really need. School is great, but there's nothing like being in the trenches, starting your own business, um, that makes you, uh, humble and, and, you know, gives you the grit that Quick you need. on your feet too. Yeah, absolutely. Did you feel as though there was this pressure because you were from the Robbins family to excel to an exceptional level? Uh, yeah, it was, I would say yes, but the pressure was internal. Like I, I didn't feel it from the outside. I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't really care if people around me were looking at me, making sure, you know, seeing if I was successful. Um, because I was, again, I was kind of in a different world. I was in the financial world. So I, it was really about, it was really my own, you know, hearing the continual don't ever settle kind of, you know, mantra in my head and all the things that I had learned growing up that, you know, I had to, I had heard them and now it was time for me to apply them if I wanted to be authentic and genuine about my success. So I think that was where I was like, you know, I do feel a lot of pressure, but it was self-induced pressure, um, to make something happen. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. It's also just growing up too, you know, yeah, yeah. Now what you, what is your purpose? What, you know, getting rid of some of the because we all feel pressure, and I think especially when we're first trying to figure it all out, and we're trying to please our family and do what we we think is expected of us, and then along the way we sometimes lose ourselves. But then we For go sure. back. Hopefully, we find that um, we identify with ourselves. Hopefully, sooner than later. What brought you to finance, though? I mean, what uh, what made you want to even in, in, involve yourself in this particular industry, and then now even. Um, 
I feel like you've really taken it to the service level. But what is it about money that makes you interest that interests you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I stumbled into it out of college. Um, you know, like most people do, into different positions. And then, you know, when I when I really, uh, I've always again kind of had that entrepreneurial spirit. Always felt like the opportunity was there to to do well in this space. Um, one of the things that I this is a this is a, a benefit that is that you know if you build if you build a business the right way in this space you know you you get paid like a recurring income and I really wanted to build that for myself I felt like that was either I see I see people who are very successful and they always have figured out a way to not start over every January and I know that that's not practical for most um, but I felt like a recurring income was if I could figure out a way to do that that was the code I wanted to crack and by the way it took me <laughs> you know 15 years to to, to really do it right. Um, but I think that was the one I, and I see, and also like apartments, I've seen, you know, very successful people who own apartments and have generated income that way. Um, tax, tax efficient income, very tight. So I see a lot of, a lot of different ways of people generating income. So I think that was the thing that I saw, like was the business aspect. And then I also saw how, unfortunately, financially as successful as, you know, as, as prosperous as this country is, we're also relatively financially illiterate. So I felt like there was value to be had. So going back to the original, like, how do I add more value? If I could provide education, and I feel like Tony, one of the things Tony gave me was the, Tony has this incredible ability to take something complex and synthesize it in a simple way, right? And so that's where, um, and he just did it with these financial books, Money Master the Game and then Unshakable. And I, I did that as well in my career, obviously on a much, much, much smaller scale. So that was where I felt like I could add a lot of value is through education and making things simple. And then also I, I love marketing. Marketing is really my, one of my core functions. And I believe that people learn through story, right? That's the, you know, we can't, we, you know, we have a, a 20 second attention span these days, but yet we'll sit for a two and a half hour movie and not even look at our phone because we're so engaged in the story. And so I love to take, how could I merge what I call, what I call story selling, right? With, with what I do and how to create story and move people emotionally and, you know, create a narrative that's, that people attach to. And by the way, that is probably the most challenging thing in 401k, right? It's out of sight, out of mind. I check the box. Yeah, it happens automatically. I'm good. How do I create a narrative, right? For people to, to, and business owners to say, wow, I need to, I need to put, I need to put a pebble in their shoe, so to speak. So they actually can, will look up from their desk and say, huh, maybe I have something wrong with my 401k plan. So to build that narrative and all that, that's what excited me about kind of merging the relationship with money with, with some of my skill sets. Hmm. So that's kind of how I fell in here. And then I think there's just, I, I think with America's best 401k more than ever, uh, the company was founded in 2012 by our CEO, Tom Zaganer, who's amazing. And then 2014 is when Tony and I joined forces. And I think just the, I, and, you know, not to elevate it too much, but the social injustice, if you will, of why you people are penalized for their choice of employer, right? If you work at Apple, you probably have a really good plan. If you work for a local dentist, you might have a really crappy plan. Like why? Why should there, why shouldn't there be a level playing field? And more than that, these people are going to be, they're going to have to rely on other people. They're going to run out of money sooner. They're going to rely on the government. There's like huge societal implications of this epidemic and I said, you know, if I, I mean, what, what greater good could I be called to if I could make something, uh, make a dent <clears throat> and I don't think we're going to be the only company that does it. I think we're going to start a trend of people coming in and we're going to force the hand of a lot of these providers. And, and that's going to make 
an impact on hopefully 90 million Americans that are relying on their 401k. So that's why I got so excited about where I am today and continue to be passionate about it is because it's the, it's the culmination of all of those things that I just described. That's a very good answer. Very All good right. answers. There was a, I wasn't expecting so, such a multifaceted, but clearly you thought about this and you're doing what you're doing because you absolutely should be doing this. It's time now for our So Money Question of the Day brought to us by Chase Slate. Josh, what is your number one money habit that you practice today that helps you with your personal finances? The number one thing that I do today is um, I – I, of course, I stock money away, but that's kind of a boring answer. I think the most important thing I do is I create the ritual of taking, as soon as the money comes in, um, I take 10% and put it into my donor advised fund. And I don't know if you're familiar with donor advised funds, but uh, it's really a way, it's an account that is with underneath the umbrella of a charity. So I get a deduction as soon as I put the money in there, but then the money sits there. And then when things come up that I want to give to, <clears throat> I just log into my donor advised fund and I just say, okay, send this charity a check, send this charity a check, send this charity a check. And then I only have to do, you know, one tax receipt for the original amount that I contributed. But the point is, is that, um, I think that if, you know, the principle of, if you won't give a dime out of a dollar, you're not going to give 10,000 out of a hundred thousand, you know, you're not going to give 10 million out of a hundred million. So you have to start with the principle of being, of creating generosity. And I'll be honest, sometimes that money gets my account and you start to look at that and it starts to get, it starts to get a little comfy in there. And so sometimes the, the discipline of just saying, nope, as soon as it hits, so we're going to send out that check and uh, send out that wire and put it in my donor advised account. And then, you know, so making sure that giving um, is a habit in my life is the number one thing that I do that I'm at least most excited about at the end of the year. And I look at how much we've been able to do and look at all the charities. And then we get all the correspondence from the charities and the, the thank you notes and then the stories and the impact. That's what it's all about. So that to me is the number one the number one, uh, uh, the, you know, I think a lot of people give, but I think you've got to create a, the discipline of giving. Certainly, because I know for a lot of us, it gets to the end of the year and we're like, oh, you know, I probably should donate more. And then we don't maybe end up donating as much or it's a rush to the finish line and we don't make it a very meaningful give. And so I right. like this, this, this segregated fund where you're contributing automatically every month or every paycheck and then you see it accumulate, you can almost feel, it almost looks like you can, it feels as though you can do more with it now because it's accumulated. You're like, wow, I can really make a dent. Um, it yeah. Can impact. And it can be invested too. And that's the thing mm -hmm. too, is I like, you don't have to give it away right away. So to your point about the end of the year rush, you don't have to worry about that. So if you, if you make the donate, you know, cut a check to your donor advised account this year, I can, I can give it away next year. I don't have to, there's no stipulation that makes me give it away this year. So it kind of gives me that freedom to say, okay, I don't have to do that fire drill. Um, and by the way, these are not, these are not unique to any specific company. So you can do these at Fidelity or you can do these at, um, Schwab. I use a group called National Christian Foundation, NCF. They're great. I mean, there's a bunch of different ones that you can use. Um, they all have little, little tweaks, but really it's a, it's just a structure. So yeah, I'd highly encourage uh, everybody to do that if it, if it makes sense, but man, it's so, it's such a, such a, they also do some, the good ones will source great opportunities for you, especially like in times of crisis, like Harvey and all these storms that come through, they'll actually feed you. Like you want to make it, you want to do something and they'll feed you like, Hey, here's five on the ground charities that are really doing great work that we've sourced. Do you want to give through your account to them? So it makes it kind of really helpful. All right, Josh, you've been so much fun. Let's do some so money fill in the blanks before I let you go. 
Really okay. quick, just finish these sentences. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I don't suspect you're a lottery player, but let's just say you got a nice <laughs> lump not. sum of um, I don't know, $120 million. <laughs> the first thing I would do is? I would create an accelerator um, that would get that would create a team, like a SWAT team of unbelievable talent. Uh, and like from digital marketing to, you know, numbers, everything. And I would sick that SWAT team on amazing nonprofits and for profits that are for social good and help them, you know, build the story brand selling, build the narrative. I would help them kind of, I'd come in like a, like, yeah, like a SWAT team drop in and help those companies. I build that and help those organizations because that's, that's the next chapter of my life. So I've already thought about that thoroughly. Wow. And yeah. I, I was going to say, that's a really well thought out answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the next chapter. That's the next chapter. So I don't need to win the lottery to do it, but I, I, that would really, that would give me a huge head start. <laughs> that's great because you're right. You, you could have the most amazing business. And if you don't know how to position yourself to share that story of how you got started and what is your mission, then unfortunately no one's going to find you. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, that's a great, that's a great mission. Okay. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Um, personal training slash gym. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's expensive, but man, it's, it's, it's worth it. You know, why, why else? You've got to take care of your health. You can have all the money in the world, but got to take care of your health. Is it, a, are you like a six day a week? Uh, yeah, I do. So I do like, Exerciser? I'll do like, I'll do spin class like three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, at this crazy spin class where it's like, you know, lights are off. It's like a nightclub basically. And then, and then I do another three days a week in like a more like a functional training, like where they do like a lot of, you know, body weight stuff and you're doing a lot. It's, you know, it's kind of like CrossFit, but not as intense and uh, but much more functional and it's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Change it up is good. Yeah, no doubt. My biggest splurge that I'm unapologetic about is cars. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm so bad. I know I read all that. I get, I cringe when I see all these articles about how you know stupid it is to lease cars and buy cars. And it's just become one of those things where I write it off in my life and say, you know what? I love cars. I usually go through them every 18 months, find something new, find something fun. It's just one of those things that I just love and I'm okay with it as a cost in my life. <laughs> there, there has there ever been a car that after 18 months, you're like, I'd like to hold on to this a little bit longer. Never. Really? I, okay. No, I'm just like, yeah, I, I'm, I get, I just want to, I want, I want the variety. I love a car. I'm like, ah, oh, that was amazing. Okay. Now on to something new, try something new. So it's a, it's a really expensive and stupid addiction, but there it is. <laughs> hey, unapologetic. I said. mean, that's what I said. Yes, you gave me what I asked for. <laughs> um, one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is. Uh, the power of compounding and starting early with a portfolio of low cost index funds. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. And I don't I, think I any child I, knows that. That's, that's not to discredit anyone who raised you. That is not information we ever get growing up. True. But I think if I could do that with, you know, if I could show my kids that discipline now and I, cause I know here's what I, what I'm really getting at is that if they could just put away $10 a month, $20 a month when, you know, when they're teens and start working towards that, that would be such a, they would have such a huge head start as we learned about uh, earlier when I talked about that compounding example. So I guess you just say the power of compounding, you know, the, and you know, the, there's just zero in high school or even college, frankly, that is helping people understand personal finance. I mean, it needs, you know, and I, and I, one of the reasons I like what you, what you're doing and, and you're getting out there and making this, you got to educate people. 
And we got to do it in the way that they, you know, not textbook form. We got to do it in the way that they consume information, which is why your podcast is so great. So that's to me is one of the things I, I wish that, that I had growing up. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for that compliment. And last but not least, I am Josh Robbins. I'm so money because. I am willing to, uh, willing and wanting and desiring that everybody be financially successful and, um, take ownership of their financial freedom. And, uh, yeah, that's it. It's a nice way to cap the show. Thank you so much, Josh. We really appreciate all the work you're doing for us as our advocate out there for our retirement funds and really enjoyed listening to you talk about, you know, your childhood and all the lessons learned there. We really, uh, Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Josh for stopping by his website. Check out americasbest401k.com. And he's also on Twitter at Jenkins Robbins. All this information is back at somoneypodcast.com. Don't be afraid to stop by and download the transcript, re-listen to the audio. Also, click on Ask Farnoosh while you're there. Leave me your biggest money question or career question for our Friday episodes. If you want to co-host with me, that's also where you might want to indicate. And I will be in touch. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Check out the fine print in your 401k, all right? I hope your day is so money. So money.